bum bum bottom 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 bum
comic book pages. Yeah. And when you go online and you take a look at like what is actually at the museum, what you mostly see are the MCU costumes, Mm -hmm. which are cool. Yes, very. They have Ruth Carter's Black Panther costumes there on display. Okoye's costume in particular looks stunning in Mm -hmm. person. Tom Holland's spider suit is there. Benedict Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange cloak. All that stuff. You also see online the photo ops. Like I think everyone who has gone to this exhibit has sat next to Ben Grimm on that couch and had their photo taken. We did that too. It's great. What a lovely memento. But what you don't see a lot online are the crazy amount of original comics pages that they have on display on the walls. And these aren't just like throwaway pages. These are the iconic Marvel pages. There is original interior art from Jack Kirby, Steve Ditko, John Romita. There's Bob Layton's Demon in a Bottle cover. Yeah, like, and you look at that Demon in a Bottle cover and you see how unprecious they are Mm. about the original art, the creators, like Bob Layton, especially like the 60s guys, like Kirby and Ditko's original art, it's chopped up, it's whited out, it's erased and redrawn. Like there's no specialness applied by the artist to the finished piece. And that is, I think you even said this on the car ride home, like it's incredibly freeing to see all the mistakes and, and reworkings that Kirby and Ditko were doing. For me, it's about seeing the byproducts of the process. Because a lot of these people are not with us anymore. They've already said everything that they're going to say about how the magic ended up on the page. So I feel like in these tattered pages, there are still answers to be studied. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's uh, a particular Daredevil cover. I think it is number four. For, uh, I tweeted it. You can check out our feed, but it's from Wally Wood. Mm. And just, you know, putting your nose up against the glass. And we could put our eyes like right on the pages practically. We were pretty shameless. <laughs> like it was unbelievable. But being able to do that with a piece of Wally Wood art, you can honestly sense the life on that page. You can feel Wally Wood on that page. And Same goes for Jack Kirby. And these are, you know, Tales to Astonish pages. These are Mighty Thor pages. These are Fantastic Four pages. And being able to connect with Kirby in that manner, it's it's very different than when you crack open a physical copy of the comic or a trade paperback or whatever. And it was a very emotional experience. And I was taken aback by how, like, teary I got looking at Kirby pencils and Joe Sinet inks. Like it's, it was a really special trip and it would have been worth the drive for any number Single of Single one of those. Right. And it was almost exhausting to turn the corner and go like, oh my God, those are the original pages of the death of Gwen Stacy. What? And then that over there, that's the first pencil sketch that John Romita ever did of the Punisher. It's like, oh, is he the Grim Reaper? Is he the Executioner? They're still figuring these things out. And like, they're like, it just one after the other. Like we saw a Joe Jusco Deathlock painting. Like, oh my God. I think that if we had seen an itemized list of what was there, we wouldn't have gone. Why do you say that? 
because we would have been overwhelmed. We go like, well, we want to spend way more than three hours there. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and that is true. That is true. I do want to spend more than three hours there. We want to go back. We are going to. Like, we need to go back. We also need to check out the Billy Ireland uh, Cartoon Museum that's up in Columbus, Ohio. There's all kinds of really crazy bookstores and comic book shops there. Uh, The eating there looks stupendous. We found a great diner afterwards, 4th and State. Yeah, it's an all-vegan diner where it's not like health food. It's like junk no. food. Yeah, I had a burrito, and that did not feel healthy in <laughs> any way, but, <laughs> but it, was it was delicious. delicious. Oh, yeah. jinx. And they had like, you know, ginger beers and all kinds of vodka drinks. Baked Lisa, goods. Lisa got smashed. I did. I, I got like some kind of a gin and tonic situation, and uh, it was like four o'clock, and I had not eaten, and I was like, I'm ready for a nap, like yeah. now. Well, I was super jealous of it, so I want to go back to that diner so I can really partake in all those beverages. <laughs> yes. But long story short, if you've got the time and the energy to do so and the madness, it's well worth a six-hour drive or a 12-hour drive in total. And I am going to go back and I want to seriously study those pieces. And if you want to get like a glimpse of what uh, you can find in the COSI exhibit, we posted a lot of photos on our Instagram and Twitter feed, CBCC Podcast. Do, do check out those feeds because there is no way on this audio medium that we can do that exhibit any justice. Yeah, and like the camera, the camera captures a lot of what the eye can see, but not all of it. You know, if you want to see those blue lines, you got to get to that museum. Nose to glass, baby, nose to glass. (laughs) But now we got to move into another universe. We're finally doing it, gang. We're entering the Valiant Comics world. We're taking two episodes to discuss the second life of Dr. Mirage. You've entered into episode one, issues one through nine, with a cliffhanger ending. And we gotta thank the Ten Cent Takes podcast for this wild detour into Valiant. Months back, we started chatting with their co-host Mike Thompson about Dr. Mirage, and he was like the first to suggest Wen and Carmen as a couple. He had recently fallen into a Valiant Comics rabbit hole and was totally loving it. And though those conversations eventually led us to guesting on their show to discuss the Image Comics Valiant Comics crossover event, Death Mate. And hopefully you've all had a chance to listen to that conversation by now. If not, don't worry, there's a link in the show notes. And we would encourage all of you to listen to that episode because Mike and Jessica do an exceptional job setting up the early 90s comics market that birthed Valiant. If you're going to take the deep dive into Deathmate, I do recommend that you bring a friend because you're gonna want to <laughs> you're gonna want to hold somebody's hands through that. And that was Lisa's first experience with Valiant, and I was like, Lisa, does this serve like a as a great gateway into Doctor Mirage? Do you think reading Deathmate helped you appreciate Doctor Mirage a little bit more? And Lisa, your answer was no, no, of course not, because when I was reading Deathmate. I had no idea who the image characters were and who the Valiant characters were. But now I know that uh, Master Dark comes back, uh, Eclipse comes back, and that's it. That's it. So you had some familiarity, but reading Deathmate is like a child who has never swam before being thrown into the deep end of the ocean, like hanging out above the Marianas Trench. It's like 
a kid who's never swam before being thrown into the Marianas Trench and then somebody asking, so what are the fish like? Like, I have no idea. I was frightened. I was I didn't feel safe. Oh, damn. I mean, that <laughs> is accurate. Deathmate is a wild one. And Valiant has an extremely radical backstory that Mike and Jessica get into with that Deathmate episode. So go back, listen to that. Uh, that's where you're going to find the best context for our second life of Dr. Mirage conversation. So assuming you've already listened to that episode, we're now putting Gwen and Carmen into our waiting room and their session is about to begin, but I still have a little extra context that I would like to apply to this particular episode. You know I love context. Many layers. The great thing about The Second Life of Dr. Mirage is that there are only 18 issues in the original series, although the modern Valiant Comics Company has published a few follow-ups. But the first issue came out in November of 1993, and it would run for two years. Uh, the speculator bubble was in the process of bursting, but that being said, these 18 issues still sold more than 2 million copies, which are numbers that many would kill to have in 2021. Hwen and Carmen first appeared in Shadow Shadow Man number 16, which came out in August of 93, and they were created by Bob Layton and Bernard Chang, but it should be mentioned that Shadow Man 16 was illustrated by Bob Hall. Layton has said in interviews that the second life of Dr. Mirage came from his desire to create comics that appeal to female readers, and Lisa, you'll have to tell me if he succeeds in that mission or not. I think so. I had a great time. But I think what really separates this book from other couple comics is what Lisa implied in our intro it's that the central couple is highly functional, right? And that feels extremely rare, not only within comics, but within pop culture. And I think the comic does a good job of showing that there is still drama in yes. functional couples. There are times where we feel squidgy and, and we don't know how to express each other without going like, this relationship is on the brink, you guys. Right, there's no dread in this relationship. You feel like even when this couple is arguing that they are still together, they're still gonna make it. It doesn't feel like this this series is building to a massive breakup. It's not a will they, won't they? Because they will. And that's beautiful. Because they've done it. Yeah. And it's also worth noting that this is an interracial couple, mm -hmm. which was also an incredible rarity within the medium at this time. And if you go to The Second Life of Dr. Mirage, issue number three, at the end of the comic, there is a really lovely letter from David Namjuan Neum, and he says this. Dear Valiant Staff, I purchased a Dr. Mirage book which I perused, analyzed, and most importantly, enjoyed. In fact, I wish to commend all of you on your work. Not only did you beautifully write and illustrate an unusual story, but moreover, you have addressed a much neglected racial issue. In fact, Valiant is the only major player, as far as I know, to have done so. The barrier I speak of is that against Asians. Throughout history, the Asian population has been viewed either with contempt or as a threat. From the villainous Fu Manchu to the overpowering Japanese corporations, Asians are often portrayed as the ideal villains. Dr. Mirage, however, treats the Asian people as ordinary people, not as villains or broken English-speaking criminals. Also, this series illustrates interracial marriage as a plus, not as a conflict. Therefore, I must applaud you for your great leap forward in 
comicdom as well as humanity. I myself am a first-generation Vietnamese-American raised with Vietnamese and American values, and I suffered the painful whip of racism at an early age. Racism is even stronger today than before, and I have fought against it through education, friendship, and love. It is a sight for sore eyes to see an Asian shown as a major positive comic book character who represents better interracial relations. Keep up the great work. That's just like such an incredible letter from David and it just punched me right in the gut because even though we've made strides in representation in pop culture, we still have an incredible journey ahead of us. And this letter feels like it could have been written Today. Absolutely. And certainly, judging by the last couple of years, the racism toward the Asian community is out of control and utterly repulsive. And we need more comics, movies, television shows, gateways into their experience so that we can create more empathy, so that we can become a better humanity. Art and stories may not necessarily be the remedy, but they are a remedy. Yeah, absolutely. It's the great Roger Ebert quote about movies, narratives, being empathy machines. We open their doors, we step in, we get behind the wheel, and we drive inside somebody's brain. We feel what they are experiencing. And you cannot dismiss that power, and that's what you're reading in David's letter here in Dr. Mirage number three. And if all Dr. Mirage did was ease some of David's pain and anguish, then it's well worth it. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. And clearly, you know, Bob Layton and Bernard Chang were really proud to have had this influence on David, and that's why they include it in issue three. You know, like Bob Layton is probably best known for being the go-to Iron Man illustrator in the late 80s. Frankly, no one can capture that shellhead armor shine quite like him, but he left Marvel in the early 90s and joined former Marvel editor-in-chief Jim Shooter over at Valiant, and along with illustrator Barry Windsor Smith and a few lawyers and businessmen, he helped birth the Valiant universe. Shooter's time at Valiant exploded, and Bob Layton graduated to editor-in-chief, and all the while he's writing and inking comics, just blitzing through product, and Dr. Mirage is a highlight of that time. Bernard Chang, he did his first comics work at Valiant, working on titles like Archer and Armstrong, Turok Dinosaur Hunter, Deathmate, uh, before becoming the primary artist on The Second Life of Dr. Mirage. He was a Valiant Comics breakout, and only did four years with the company before jumping on over to Marvel Comics and DC Comics, and while the comics industry was seriously struggling, Chang became a blue sky concept designer for Walt Disney's Imagineering. That's cool. Right? Thankfully, though, he came back to comics and he'll be doing DC's new Monkey Prince comic coming out next year from Gene Lu and Yang. Love him. Yeah, uh, we're more than a little excited about that. If you know of our Dragon Hoops obsession, then you'll know we'll snag anything from Yang. And the idea of him and Chang doing a superhero spin on the Monkey Prince mythology is utterly irresistible. I'm so excited. February 2022, Lisa. I I guess we have to continue. 
<laughs> but we're still in 2021. We got to deal with December, Lisa. We got to deal with Dr. Mirage. And before we can do that, we got to talk about our love expert. After all, we're not professional therapists. We're just a married couple trying to do the best we can. So Lisa, who's helping us with when and Carmen this week? Yes, our love expert. Our love expert? Our love expert. Oh, I'm, no. going, I'm going to ask you to hold the definition of the term expert rather loosely over the next two episodes. But if you are looking for a relationship book and your only criteria is that it could be read in one sitting, have I got the book <laughs> for you. Our love expert is Marco Petkovic, M period, SC period, Mmsk. What does that mean? How about you guess? Uh, medical scientist? Miscellaneous. <laughs> uh, good guess. Uh, it stands for Masters of Science. Okay, I was close. <laughs> Which science? I don't know. It could be computer science or economics or culinary science, or mystery science theater 3000. Maybe he did his thesis comparing and contrasting Joe and Mike. <laughs> it's not in the author's note. Lisa, I'm going to take a wild swing and say that uh, you did not enjoy this particular love expert. You are correct. His book, The Five Little Love Rituals, Connect and Keep Your Love Alive, No Matter How Busy You Are, from Feel Good Rituals Publishing, second edition, 2015. I figured Carmen when they're they're running their business, they've got paranormal investigations and Carmen has her capoeira and Juan has a lot of daytime television to watch. They've got a lot on their plate, so I thought maybe they could use a few pointers on how to keep their love alive while Juan is, you know, a ghost. <laughs> so I gave it a goog. This book came up. It was only 4.99, so I Bye. thought, why not? Take a gamble. Now I want $4.97 back. That's life sometimes. <laughs> oh, brutal, uh, but fascinating. And, you know, like, you know, the way this show works is like we make choices and we live with them. <laughs> That's right. So what qualifications does this guy have to write a relationship book? Well, none. Does that stop him from speaking authoritatively, making egregious claims, and sweeping generalizations? It doesn't stop us. Brad, it does stop us. The entire concept of having the love expert is so that right, we right, do right, not right, have right. to depend on ourselves. And like, uh, to me, I think it's really important when you're talking about something as huge as relationships to realize that not everybody's situation is the same, which is why we have licensing for medical doctors and therapists and psychologists. Right, and so this week we chose poorly, but we're still going to use this love expert, quote unquote, for our conversation, because as we said at the beginning of this episode, it's December, it's madness. We don't have time to refind a new also, love expert. Also, I think it is important to talk about what a person should be looking for when it comes to resources mm. on mental health and relationships. And I also think it's a good reminder that any dum-dum is allowed to write a book. So now let's just get my $4.97 worth, please. Okay. So in the foreword of the Five Little Love Rituals, Mr. Petrovic promises, quote, magical results 
end quote, that can instantaneously save your estranged marriage without needing too much time, money, or even the cooperation of your spouse. Oh, no. Quote, no gimmicks, no fancy psychoanalyzing, unquote. Okay. okay. Yay to the latter, because you, my friend, are not qualified. As to no gimmicks, maybe, maybe you just don't know what that word means. What that sentence should read is, quote, no citations, no merit, end quote. This is not the first time we've had love experts we have objected to. Gary Chapman, John Gray, Dr. Sue Johnson, the normal bar. And I feel like we've still managed to get a lot of insight out of them, sure. even when we're using them as bad examples. Right, like we can't stand Gary Chapman, but the five love languages have become very important in our relationship vocabulary. We've made it true for us. Yes. Will we be applying any of these five little love rituals to our relationship ongoing? You'll have to stay tuned for that. His rationale is that he does refer to the research of one of our previous love experts, Dr. John Gottman, which says that couples who stay together have, on average, five times more positive interactions than negative interactions. What research, you may ask, beats me. No citation. But because of this, Mr. Petrovic says that all an individual needs to do to save their failing relationship is to manufacture far more positive interactions with their partner than negative ones. How might they do this, Brad? Uh, by using the five little love rituals. Exactly. So here we go. Number one, doing the little things. Ask yourself, what can I do to make my partner's life more pleasurable today? He provides a bulleted list of examples of which I will give you a sample. Are you ready, Brad? I am. I'm fully loaded for this bulleted list. Patow! Uh. Simply say thank you. Show that you don't take your loved one for granted. Patow! Uh. Give them a hug for no reason at all. Patow! Uh. Wake up and prepare breakfast with your partner's favorite cereal. Patow! <laughs> Pick a chore that your partner routinely does and do it yourself without your partner knowing. And without any expectation of thanks. That cereal one got me. I would love that. <laughs> Give me some cinnamon toast crunch, Lisa. Uh, I like. I can just imagine like getting up in the morning, and you going like, "Well, thanks, sweetheart, for this soggy, no longer crispy <laughs> bowl of slop." Well, I mean, I mean, honestly, you would. You know, my cereal is grits. Would I, you be stoked if you woke up and I had already made your grits? I mean, I, I have a very particular way of making my grits. You too. And uh, I, I like doing it myself. <laughs> he does. So that that particular one, we wouldn't take that as one of our love rituals. Because <laughs> that's one of your self-love rituals. Uh, Lisa, don't bring that up with our listeners. <laughs> but, you know, self-love is important. Though, if you do it too much, you will go blind. Okay, love ritual number two. Connecting the dots. And to Petrovic, that means uh, talking to your partner every once in a while. Oh, that's good. Good, good, good. Ask them how their day was in an environment free of distractions. No phones, screens, 
or children. Retain a few of the details so that the next time you talk, you can bring them up again in your next conversation. Yep, that's listen, remember, retain, repeat. (laughs) Good, good, good. Weave in some praise and admiration, avoid giving unsolicited advice, and demonstrate that you support them even when you don't agree with them. Petrovic does admit that it will sound intimidating to some men because he is a gender normative jerkwad. Uh, I mean, there is some common sense good stuff there, though. Yeah, like when you're in a relationship, you should participate. You should be curious about your partner. And we've talked about it in the past. Like, that is something that boneheaded people need to be reminded of. We get so caught up in our own brains that we need to remember we're in a relationship and it takes two. Sure, sure. He also recommends doing monthly or bi-monthly state of the union type conversations where you just discuss your relationship. That's kind of like what we want to do with the State of the Union with our podcast, have these (laughs) meetings, these podcast CBCC meetings. And it's something that we have not actually incorporated into our schedules yet. And maybe if you are struggling in your relationship with communication, getting something on the calendar where you can actually get together and talk about what's going on in your partnership is a good idea. I mean, I think that we do take it for granted that we've created a platform where we get to talk about like how our relationship is functioning and readdressing our principles and all of that stuff. And I'm sure in busy marriages where they are starting to feel estranged and the relationship is becoming something of a hot button issue. I could see that being put on the back burner again and again. Right. Love ritual number three, touching for no reason. And by (laughs) no reason, he means without the expectation of intercourse. I mean, is this guy for real? Is this a thinly veiled manual for body snatchers infiltrating human marriages? He does include a bulleted list of examples of non-sexual touching. And I will spare you, though one of them is, quote, Rest your partner's head in your lap and give them a gentle eye massage, which he highly recommends. Eye massage? Brad and I uh, did actually give eye massages a go. Oh, I was going to pretend like this was a revelation to me. (laughs) Um, We did get, and we promise you, it is non-sexual touching. (laughs) Like, that is confirmed. It's creepy. Love ritual number four, planning your fun. Schedule it in, you guys. He does give a bulleted list of things humans do, including going out to dinner and, get this, staying in for dinner. Yeah, really, I hope (laughs) Kang and Kodos from The Simpsons are paying attention. Oh, yeah. Love ritual number five, creating a mystery. He does cite one of our previous love experts, psychotherapist Esther Burrell, when explaining the reasoning behind this ritual. And I'm sure she would be flattered if she could get over him calling her a French researcher when she is from Belgium. (laughs) He does include a bulleted list of ways that a person can build mystery in their relationship, though most of them are writing love notes and buying gifts and presenting them in unique and surprising ways. He does give two unique examples, though. Patow! You tell your partner to get in the car with you. You set a timer and then allow your partner to pick the direction you go, like name, rights, and lefts, at random. When the timer goes off, you go to whatever restaurant you're nearest. This actually sounds pretty fun. I like this. 
The next one, Patel. <laughs> you blindfold your partner, <laughs> get them in the car, oh, no. drive to an ice cream parlor, oh. and then have your blindfolded partner try to guess the flavors of the sample. This sounds awesome. What a great date. I, except for whomever is behind the counter handing you these samples is not paid enough to, to do that. That is true. And keep in mind that he is saying that you can do this without the consent of your partner. You know what I mean? Like you're trying to fix your relationship. Well, you can't saying, like kidnap your partner. Like there's gotta be some consent in there. Like, honey, can you put this blindfold on? We're going on a date. You just don't know where you're going. Oh great, it's the it's Baskin Robbins. <laughs> but yeah, the you gotta consider the retail employee. I think that this can be done at home. Just buy a whole bunch of ice cream flavors. Oh, I, I think we should do an entire oh, Patreon episode around this. I second that. That's going to happen. This ritual does have a section for what if your partner says no to surprises. And he does say that you can't force your partner to do anything they don't want to do. Oh, thank God. But it may be an indication that you might have deeper problems in your relationship uh, that involve further discussion. Oh, no. I'm not quite sure what the mystery is supposed to be other than what is my psycho partner going to do next? Oh my God. For Carmen Ruiz and Juan Mirage, I think we should kind of keep a loose track of their interactions and rate them as positive or negative okay. to make sure that they're clearing that threshold of five times the amount of positive interactions to negative interactions. And we should also see which of these love rituals are already part of this couple's routine so we can perhaps like build on them. Yeah, love it, love it, love it. But before we could do that, Lisa, it's time for some words of affirmation. Na, 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 affirmations! Oh, wow, that was a good one. So for first-time listeners, we should explain that our words of affirmation portion of the show is devoted to those new and upgrading Patreon subscribers. These are affirmations that we curate and use ourselves, and we believe that they can help you as well. Uh, you know, we put these on our mirror, and we look at them while we brush our teeth when we're at our most grumpy, and they help us move on into a more positive energy as we meet our day. And even though these particular affirmations are dedicated to these patrons, please feel free to steal them and mm. apply them to your morning rituals. These quotes come from three Beatles songs. Yeah. All you need is love, within, without you, and the end. And I gotta say, I'm really grateful for taking this moment in this episode in particular, because I am all riled up. Uh, yeah, same. Uh, so let's uh, center our minds. Let's get to a calm place, Lisa. Sam Adams. There's nowhere you can be that isn't where you're meant to be. Jancy Overall. When you've seen beyond yourself, then you may find peace of mind is waiting there. Christopher Stimson. In the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Yeah. That's nice. Lisa and I, uh, have we talked about Get Back? Uh, I don't think so. We, we've watched all eight hours of that uh, documentary from Peter Jackson, and we found it incredibly 
emotional and inspirational. Uh, I've been re-watching segments of it. I've been listening to the Beatles in a way that I've never listened to the Beatles before. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling a lot of creative and emotional energy from the Beatles. And, uh, I, I think it's a good time to go back and look at their work and truly appreciate how revolutionary it was. Uh, so yeah, I hope, I hope you uh, enjoyed those lyrics, those affirmations. Um, of course we don't expect all of you to support our Patreon. We know that uh, times are tough and not everyone can afford to do so, but if you want to support comic book couples counseling in any way, uh, you, you can do it through Patreon or you can just go to Apple podcasts, leave us a five-star review, uh, say something nice to us on Twitter. We love that. You know, there are cookies. That's, that, that's how we survive. I love words of affirmation. Like cookie monster loves cookies cookies. I just light up. Yeah. And that is a hundred percent true. So thank you for all of you. We're very grateful. Thank you to Sam, Jancy, and Christopher for joining our Patreon. I hope you're enjoying the Sandman episodes we're doing. And I guess now we're going to do a Baskin Robbins taste test. I love it. But now we really need to get into the meat of the episode, Mm -hmm. the second life of Dr. Mirage. Uh, So we're only reading the first nine issues of this comic book, all of which are of Available on Comixology Unlimited, although we scored the single issues on eBay for a super cheap price. I think we paid $20 for all 18 of them. Totally worth it. They were published by Valiant Comics between November 1993 and August of 1994. They were written by Bob Layton and Jim Perham, who was just co-writing on issue eight. Uh, Penciled primarily by Bernard Chang, but on issue eight, Mike Leake joined the pencil squad. Uh, Inked by Ken Branch, colored by Maurice Fontenot and Mark uh, Kazar. Kazar? Cesar. Cesar? Cesar? Yeah. Uh, And lettered by Rob Johnson, Joe Bello and Santiago Vasquez. Here's the plot synopsis taken from Comixology. Parapsychologist Dr. Juan Mirage and his Brazilian bombshell kickboxing expert wife Carmen Ruiz are in world-class stuff of legend love. What? That's a terrible sentence. Ah! I like it. I think it's true. Are in world-class stuff of legend love? Yeah. Shouldn't it be are in a world-class stuff of legend love? You love cutting the little words. I don't think you have any room to speak. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, their uh, love is so strong, it transcends time, space, death, and the sorceress power of Master Dark. But can it withstand the second life of Dr. Mirage as an insubstantial specter of necromantic energy incapable of holding, kissing, or even touching his wife? We'll just have to wait and see. My only issue with that copy is that they fail to mention that she's also an engineer. Right. Uh, she probably has a master's in science, you guys. Unlike other people. Yeah, that's right. But let's uh, get into session. Let's bring Gwen and Carmen out of the waiting room and onto our couch and get to talking the second life of Dr. Mirage. I really enjoyed this first issue. Me too. I love how it starts immediately by establishing Carmen and Wen as this very effective professional team that's called in by the New York Police Department to investigate these two weird corpses that they've had in their morgue for the last several months. They certainly have gained the respect of Lieutenant Morgan because he specifically called them in 
for their expertise in paranormal psychology, but they do get a little blowback from Dr. Westheimer at the morgue going like, I don't know about this like woo woo stuff. Yeah, I mean, you see this set up in Law and Order mm -hmm. and Murder, She Wrote, where like X the kooky, X-Files Quantum Leap, mm -hmm. where the police call in the kooky weirdo psychics and Jerry Orbach like dismisses them immediately. But this is the setup for Dr. Mirage. These kooky psychics in this issue are gonna be proven to be real deal. And if you're a valiant comics reader, you already know that these characters Characters, they come from, like the bodies, they come from um, Eternal Warrior. They're henchmen of Master Dark. And so it's kind of cool that this book is firmly establishing itself in the Valiant universe. You know, Jim Shooter and Bob Layton, they were doing the Stan Lee thing. They were trying to build something massive immediately. And it's working because I read these comics, Dr. Mirage, and I do want to go to Eternal Warrior. I do want to go to Solar Man of the Atom. Uh, there is an excitement in this spreading web of characters. But there is no like little box in the bottom corner of the panel to say Hook and, and Welt are from the greater universe. But it also isn't like a barrier of entry. No, I just no, like no. made a note of their names and then moved on. Yeah, and you just assume like, well, they got to come from somewhere. And I didn't know who Hook and Velt were, I had to go to like Wikipedia or Valiant's <laughs> fandom site to figure it out. But we haven't even talked about what they were called in for. They were called in because these two corpses, even though they have been long dead, their cells seem to be charged with this mysterious active energy. Necromantic energy. They don't know that yet, but that's what it is. It's like Max Master Dark is fueling them somehow. What I take away from this opening scene is... One, as professionals, Juan and Carmen greatly respect each other. Mm. They both kind of professionally, as a team, stay in their lanes. There are things that Juan does and there's things that Carmen do. Um, when introducing Carmen, Dr. Mirage calls her his associate. But he also mentions, this is in fact my wife. Yeah. And even though they're in a professional environment, they're not ashamed of performing some of their love rituals in front of the other, you know, dudes in the room. I love the moment when they pull the corpses out of the freezer and Hwen looks down and he, he looks like a little green in the gills. Uh, he, he says something like along the lines of like, oh, I do not like gooey stuff. And Carmen, like, you know, is there for him in that moment. Yeah. And I think that's really beautiful. She gives him some of that ritual number three, some non-sexual touching. She <laughs> puts her hand on his shoulder and goes like, it's going to be okay. She turned a potentially negative interaction into a positive interaction. And, and they carry that gooey um, phobia throughout the series. And Carmen never makes fun of him yes. or teases him, which I, as the neurotic person in Brad and my relationship, I really appreciate. Well, we both have weird phobias. That's true. That we won't get into right now. But we have weird phobias that uh, we've been mocked for in the past, but we treat each other's phobias deadly seriously. And that's what I responded to in this scene where Carmen, you know, like the reader was like, oh, what, what is all this gooey silliness when? But Carmen's not, doesn't ever dismiss it or mock it. She's there for him. 
in this little phobic moment. And that highlights the idea that you have to be empathetic Mm. for your partner. And so first issue, they're a team, they're a couple, they understand each other, they love each other, they know where they're coming from. There's also a moment in this scene where we see Carmen manage Huen's emotions a little bit. Um, uh, Dr. Westheimer goes like to Huen, like, what kind of name is Dr. Mirage anyway? <laughs> right. As an extension of his like skepticism about Huen's, you know, credentials. And Huen goes like dramatic. And <laughs> she goes, uh, easy baby, don't lose your temper. Because she knows that, and we find out through the course of this series that he has some trauma. He has some defensiveness around the subject of his name because Mirage is a name he gave himself because he grew up with the stigma of having an ethnic name. And so, like, I would wonder if Mr. Petrovic would say that this is a positive interaction or a negative interaction because she is trying to censor him a little bit and go like, you know, don't blow up. This is a professional situation. And we don't really see how he feels in that moment, having her stop his cycle of defensiveness. Well, and as a first time reader, you don't even pick up on why he's defensive there. It's only on the second read, knowing about the experiences, the negative experiences he's had with students, friends, mocking him for his last name, that we read this scene now and realize there's a lot of pain behind it. Well, I do think that even without the context, we see that it is tense. Yeah. Because she does whisper to him. She does use the word temper. So we know that this is a charged subject. We continue to see how Huen and Carmen balance their romantic relationship and their professional relationship um, later when they have the bodies back in their laboratory. We see Huen tentatively being hands-on with the corpses while she installs some analysis equipment and she goes like, okay, I'm going to go on my morning run. So let me know if there's anything else you might need. And he gives her some gratitude and affirmation in that moment, Uh which I think falls under like love ritual. Number one saying, thank you saying like, I always need you crazy legs. Yeah. yeah, Okay. That's what I was waiting for. I was waiting for crazy legs. (laughs) And when I came across this nickname the first time I was like, Oh, that's an awkward, weird nickname. Surely that can't ever come back up in this comic and no, that, that nickname comes back repeatedly. And I do love that because we have stupid nicknames for each other. Yeah, there are pet names that I have for Brad that I'm like, this is a secret. No one can know that this is what I say. And we're just going to have to let you guys try to like imagine what those pet names are. But they're a little similar to Crazy Legs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But as she leaves, she gives him... Um, like a, a peck on the cheek, and then he asks her for a deeper kiss. So this is an example of like, he knows this isn't going to lead to intercourse, but he still wants to have that 
touching of Ritual 3. And it's establishing what he is about to lose, what they are about to both lose when he becomes the superhero character of Dr. Mirage, that touch. So to figure out what is going on with these cells, he um, hits them with some electromagnetic pulse, and he sees that this renders the cells inert. Yeah. But in doing that, Master Dark, all the way in Louisiana, senses like this... Um, disruption in the force or whatever. Well, he, he senses someone is manipulating the necromantic energy. And Master Dark is like, hmm, he is Dr. Doom mixed with a little Ra's al Ghul. With a little Palpatine energy. With, with a little Palpatine energy. Uh, I really like Master Dark. I think he is a extremely a, a sinister and disturbing villain. And so, you know, Master Dark then is able to um, put his necromantic energy into the corpses of Hook and Velt, and they come alive in their laboratory. And we get this cool little action scene. Yeah, we get to see how she earned the name Crazy Legs. So um, he is in complete shock over these zombies that are coming at him. Doesn't like gooey things. And she comes in for the save, kicking them in the head and, and getting things a little bit more action-y, I guess. I mean, it's, 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 it's a fight sequence. She is part of the fight sequence. But then he gets to apply his strength and he goes like, oh, when I used that electromagnetic pulse, it rendered the cells inert. Therefore, if I apply electromagnetic pulse to these zombies, they will die. And it works. Yeah, and so uh, how, do, how do we go from this sequence to traveling to Tibet, where like things really kick off for this comic? When Master Dark took over Hook and Velt's bodies, he spoke and he right. said his own name. Right. So Dr. Mirage is able to give the name to Lieutenant Morgan, who then sends him to Louisiana and right, then right, right, where right, he right. talks to Sandria and Sandria's like, he's already gone to yeah. Tibet. So Master Dark's like somewhat bad, somewhat good sister rats out her brother and's like, you got to go to Tibet. Before we get to Tibet, there is one really great example of love ritual number two, connecting the dots, um, where bef while they're mid-investigation, they're having a little bathtub time together. <laughs> yeah, great I think scene. which also applies to Love Ritual number four, like planning in your fun. Yeah, and also non-sexual touching. Excellent. So they're sitting in the bath, and Huen is like working really hard on his notes, and Carmen is like, you know, like we're having this time together. Why don't you put work down and give me a little foot massage, which I think we could classify as a negative interaction. Hmm. But he immediately apologizes and realizes like, oh, I'm so sorry, I was ignoring you. But then she like immediately returns with, well, what have you found out? What are you currently working on? I also love that sequence because again, it's establishing them as a very touchy couple, which they are about to have denied to them. While Huen is giving her that foot massage, he does kind of touch on those little pointers 
that Mr. Petrovic gives in his book, he talks about her interests. Oh, Capriera must be so hard on your feet. Like, <laughs> oh, I really admire your skills in that realm. And and they have a little moment where they talk about their relationship. Like she goes like, well, you know, I am the fighter, you are the lover. So we see them balancing work talk, relationship talk, interests, all while having this intimate moment in the tub. I think it's really beautiful, actually. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Now, when they finally get to Tibet and they, uh, they, you know, they have to don their ski suits, they have to slope down these treacherous mountains, they got to find this temple where Master Dark has invaded and he's killed all the monks inside. And like his plan is tied to what we were talking about last week in our Deathmate uh, episode. He's trying to gain access to the power of the Geomancer. And what the Geomancer does is he communicates with the earth. And if you can communicate with the earth, you can control the earth. So Master Dark wants to have control over the living and the dead. And he's feeling really great about himself. He's found the remains of this long dead geomancer and he's taking out the necromantic energy, this very special necromantic energy off of this corpse. And that's when he is interrupted by these pests. And I like that they establish Wen and Carmen as this nuisance to Master Dark, you know, because they weren't on a quest to stop this bad guy. They just stumble into it. And in that stumbling, they accidentally enter into a quest. I think that Juan was just searching for answers because before Hook and Welt were walking around his lab, necromantic energy was just a theory to him. Right. So finally he finds someone who shares the same interest as and, him. And he's simply curious. Yeah, but then, like, he finds someone with the same curiosity who has gone down that road even further and finds out, well, at the end of this road, I could be a murderer or a grave robber? Yeah, I mean, it's a, a mirror character, right? It's Doctor Doom to Reed Richards or Obi-Wan Kenobi to Anakin Skywalker. Exactly. So I think that Hwen's principles are just so offended that he can't be scared in that moment. And so he goes to face off with Master Dark and Master Dark goes like, you've upset my plan and you are in my way and you have to pay for it. So I'm going to explode <laughs> you with necromantic energy. And as that's happening, Carmen is appealing to Huen, going like, you know, like, don't go, don't leave me. Do not become destroyed. The power of my love can save you. Just listen to my voice. And there's this moment where Huen like completely disappears, mm -hmm. but then he returns. And Master Dark's understanding and our understanding as the readers is that it was Carmen's love that brings him back. Yeah, but not totally back. He is now a specter, he is a ghost, he's intangible, and he is trapped, worst of all, wearing that ski suit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I had totally forgotten that the Dr. Mirage comic, that his superhero outfit just happened to be the ski suit he was wearing when he was attacked by Master Dark. And they carry that costume 
you know, I've only read the first nine issues so far, but for these nine issues, he's still wearing that costume. It's bad enough that he is a victim of necromantic energy, but he is also a fashion victim. Yeah, well, I don't know. Like, I think Bernard Chang designs a really rad ski suit. And if you are going to be trapped in any ski suit, this is the ski suit you're going to want to be trapped in, especially when you compare it to, say, like what Carmen is wearing. Like, Carmen is wearing something that you would see in ski school or ski patrol. And you're like, oh, I wouldn't want to wear that around, you know, New York City. If well, I had Carmen's bod, I totally would. <laughs> What's, I okay. totally would. And so would I. Uh, but, like, the outfit that uh, Huen has... Like, that does feel fitting when it's next to Exo Man of War or Solar Man of the Atom. I don't want to put too fine a point on that now we've established two polar ends of necromantic energy. Uh We have the dark side, which is Master Dark. Right. And now we have this other thing that is when, that is the result of love, of Carmen's love. The light side, the love side. On this final page, we see the returned Huen, like, sensing his new power. And he goes like, my God, it's everywhere. The power is in everything. I can feel it all now. And behind him is this illuminated statue of the Buddha. Yeah, it's awesome. Who is smiling over him. So I think this panel is trying to establish this transcendence that comes at a cost. Mm. Like to be one with the universe is to be detached from the universe. Yeah, to to be detached from the physical. So in the two panels later, we see Carmen, or rather Huen, pass entirely through Carmen. They can no longer embrace. And it's a brutal panel. Like this first issue, like I like this series a lot. I I think it's a lot of fun. But I think that this first issue is phenomenal, Mm -hmm. uh, especially given the era in which it was produced. The following issue, which is Dark Passage Part 2, is mostly a chase scene where Carmen and Huen are like running down the mountainside in Tibet with the remains of this deceased geomancer. And Master Dark is just throwing everything at them. Zombies of the Tibetan monks, he infuses a wolf with necromantic energy and he becomes like this beefed up werewolf guy. And that action scene is so good. And like the idea of fighting this you know, wolf monster, you know, like Carmen is on her own. Huen is starting to see that he can affect physical things when he is like emotionally heated. But for the majority of this battle, it's on Carmen to save herself and for Huen to just be terrified. Of course, when that wolf attack finally does happen, uh, you know, she's, you know, trying to defend herself. She's failing, she's failing. And it's at that moment when Huen uses his abilities and gets the fire in the fireplace to like erupt and attack the beast. This does become a like an increasing point of tension in their relationship. The fact that because he's incorporeal, he is taking on a lot more physical danger than Carmen. And it does create um, a sense of guilt in him that they have to address in a later issue. There are two moments that I'd like to touch on in this issue in particular. And the first one is... Uh, momentarily Carmen and Huen like hide out in this little cave and Carmen has a moment to kind of process what's happening and she bursts into tears because 
she is realizing that Master Dark has in one fell swoop stolen the sexual part of their relationship. And she has this period of mourning and um, she and she hates herself for not being more grateful that he wasn't disappeared entirely. Like he does continue to exist, but this part of this part of their relationship is gone. And he, in the moment, makes her feel a little bit better by going like, let's turn to the gratitude part. Yeah, I am now the consistency of a fart. And we have this, you know, sorcerer after us. And you're worried about our sex life. Like, let's just for right now deal. Let's like stay grounded in the present and be grateful for what we have. So when I was reading that sequence, I was like, I had the impression that they were going to solve the incorporeal thing quickly. And like by issue four or five, they would be touching again. But by issue nine, when they're still not touching, like I really loved how they stretch out this experience as a traumatic event. And even though a lot of the writing around the sexy talk, the sexuality is a little sophomoric and more in tone with what we're used to from image comics, sex talk, right? Uh, and maybe even like Valiant Comics sex talk. There's like, there is a teenage boy level of giggly maturity here, but narratively it's so true. This would be a traumatic event. This would be a huge hindrance in a relationship. Even though this plot is outlandish and paranormal, I think a lot of couples would find this super relatable yeah. because if you're with someone for a long time, the way that your relationship functions will inevitably change. And, um, and sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's like you're going to perhaps the next level of your relationship or you're deepening your relationship, but there is always going to be this period of mourning for how things were. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, your relationship with sex as a couple evolves, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, sex when you are dating is different than sex when you are 10 years in or 14 years in. But it's not that one is better or worse. It's different. And like, you know, I wouldn't trade. This is okay. I guess this is where we're going. <laughs> but I wouldn't trade our sex today with the sex that we had when we were rabbits. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I do agree with that because there isn't like that sense, sense of scarcity. Right. Because we're both going to our respective parents' homes. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but um, I do think that. I do think that there was a period of like realization. Like we're not having sex every day. Right, right. And, and you you would you would go like, "Oh, are we doing something wrong if we're not having sex every day?" But I think that even though where we are now is better and richer, I think that we are still entitled to a sense of nostalgia at sure. least for that time in our relationship. And I think that like Carmen and when are at a precipice of something that's unknown 
And all that they know is that it's not going to be the same. Right. And, and that's sad. The other thing I feel like we need to touch on before we move on from this particular issue is that the issue ends with Master Dark explaining to Huen, like, okay, our dark powers do seem to be opposites and we cannot directly hurt each other. But, Huen, I still have power over you because I can hurt Carmen. Right. And I don't know right now where we are with issue nine, what Master Dark holds dear? Like, where can Huen hit him where it hurts, you know? Yeah, maybe his sister. Sandria. Maybe. They maybe. have a very interesting, contentious relationship. Yeah, yeah, contentious. That's the word. Incestuous. <laughs> and in the next issue, issue three, Marital Blitz, this is like the big issue of these nine issues. When it comes to their relationship. This is when they return home. Huen uh, learns how to turn invisible. They they work it out together so that he can turn uh, invisible and fly back home. No problem. No one notices that he's in the cargo, hanging out with the pets. He doesn't like it too. <laughs> Too much, uh, and they and, and and Master Dark meets them at the airport when they land, and this is kind of like narratively the moment where Bob Layton's like, okay, we can't make every issue about Master Dark because we cancel each other out. Uh, let's not mess with each other. You know, I could kill your wife at any time. Leave me alone. And this issue becomes like when in Carmen's. Uh, adjustment period. It's also in this issue where we meet Rico, yep. who is the Mirage's live-in butler slash best friend. Yeah, he's like a slobby version of Alfred. Yeah, and throughout this series, he acts as relationship confidant to both Hwen and Carmen because, because of Hwen's condition, their social circle is extremely small. And originally they were going to not tell Rico, but Huen can't contain it. And I don't blame him because I do think it is really important to have a person with whom you can discuss your relationship yeah. in kind of a spitballing back and forth way. You need a third party, you need a friend. And Rico really gives them both this space where they can reach revelations and conclusions independent of each other. And we see why that's necessary because for the first half of this issue, they're trying to ignore the problem. They're trying to like go about their day. Don't worry about it now. We'll figure it out in the future. Let's just have fun. But they they can't, right? Like this is, this is a massive thing in their lives. And as they try to ignore it, what they are actually doing is creating this tension between them. It's like emotional dis distance because it's the only thing that's on either of their minds. Right. But they both feel like they don't have the emotional fortitude to really talk about it or address it. And Huen actually catches Carmen venting her fr frustrations on the bag in the gym. And he actually becomes concerned with her safety, like she's going to overexert and hurt herself. And he gets her to open up and they both end up sobbing. And Huen points out like, our relationship, without being specific, he says like, our relationship has never been normal. We've, we've never been the mainstream couple. Right, they're the weirdo psychics that the cops call in to look at corpses. How could they be normal? 
But also, I think this is a reference to there being an interracial relationship as well. Like, they have never had the luxury of feeling like they are conventional. When they walk into a room, people look at them. And when admits, like, we can't go on like this pretending like things are the same. Like, we have to take a moment and figure this out. And I have faith in the both of us that we will. It seems like this one that are absent from other comic book couple comics, right? There is a sense of we've got this. Like, even though this is terrible and we're confused and we're hurt and we don't know what's going to come next, we know that we're together. And, like, it it just goes to solidify Carmen and Wen as a really unique comic book couple. Uh, I do also really like that later that night, while Carmen is sleeping, Wen, who doesn't sleep, that's another one of the tragedies of his new existence. All he can do is watch TV and think all day. Mm -hmm. Uh, He goes up to her sleeping body and he confesses his worries to her. Like he vents his insecurities. And, um, and then when she wakes up because somebody is talking over her, (laughs) he becomes invisible. Right. So she doesn't see him in that state. And then he, that's when he decides to go open up to Enrico and go like, I don't know, like I've already told Carmen that we're going to make this better. And I have no no idea. idea. Exactly. And while he's doing this, he's already figured out how to change the channels of the television (laughs) with his mind. And he goes like, well, I notice you moving objects around and stuff. Enrico says this. Exactly. And Enrico goes like, well, if you can move the channel changer, do you think you can move like- The G-spot? People? Exactly. (laughs) So in the meantime- Carmen has taken on a client without Huen, and she's decided she's going to Saudi Arabia alone to investigate so that they have this opportunity to have some time apart, which causes this panic in Huen. So then he takes his magic manipulative abilities into the bedroom where he figures out how to... Sexually mm, please her. Exactly. And following that scene, she's like, sure, you can come to Saudi Arabia <laughs> with me. And I I find this scene extremely vulnerable, for one, for Carmen to be in this place to admit that. Like, because, I, like, in American culture, we shame anybody for, like, going, like... I have like part of my relationship is my sexual needs. Like we go like, well, that's shallow or whatever. So I I think that that's really big of Carmen. But I also think it's beautiful of Huen because he like we don't know exactly what his physical needs are. But this is something he's doing purely for her pleasure and the gratification of knowing that he is pleasing her. Yeah, I mean, that's what he talks about. Like, the idea that he cannot sexually gratify his wife is terrifying to him, as it would be to me. And I see this scene as such an honest sequence. Mm. Like, you come across this this moment in this comic book, and it feels like a revelatory moment in relationship comics. And is it sharing too much that I think it's kind of hot? It's super hot. It's super hot. 
And it's an extension of the conversation they were having earlier about like, we're going to make it. We're going to figure this out. This is them figuring it out. Yeah, we're not going to be the same. We are going to have to find a new way to function and we're going to do it together because that's what we do. And like, not to get too serious, but there are couples who have their sexuality stolen from them and they have to find other ways. And, you know, like, I, I, it's, it's, I think it's a fear for a lot of people. Like, what would happen if that happens? Mm -hmm. And I've seen the movie Monkey Shines. You find a way. Gwen and Carmen find a way. And this makes me think about Mr. Petrovic saying that touching without intercourse is like is touching for no reason. Right. Like there's more to sexual intimacy than just is everybody having orgasms. You, right. Orgasm isn't a goal. I mean, it's something that is certainly function. Well, okay. Lisa <laughs> just looked at me. Orgasm's a goal for Lisa and Brad <laughs> listeners. Don't look at me like that. But I'm just saying like, orgasm is not the end all of a relationship. You can have a loving romantic relationship without orgasm. I think, I think that it's time to move on. Okay. Issue four, bull market. Not my favorite issue. Yeah. Uh, maybe my least favorite issue of these nine issues. Uh, in it, Carmen is hired by a Texas cattle rancher to protect his prize bull, Eugene, that happens to feast on necromantic energy. And also happens to be not his bull. Yeah, and then, like... Yeah, this is like the Temple of Doom issue. There's some really uncomfortable race stuff in this one. The less said about it, the better. But it does introduce the idea that Wen is hiding from his mother, Mama Fong. Because he doesn't know how to break it to her to her that he is now a ghost. Yeah, and, and this will continue through the rest of these nine issues. And, and I think we'll finally climax, hopefully in issue 10, issue 11. Um, there is also a nice moment of connecting the dots at the end of this issue. And it's clear that it is part of their routine at the end of an adventure or just at the end of the day to go like, how was today for you? So so that's, that's a love ritual that yeah, everyone should keep. I mean, this feels like the heart to heart moment. Like they are finally becoming that sitcom action adventure, Magnum PI, Simon and Simon team. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a little bit more episodic monster of the weeky. Yep. Yep. But then we go into the next issue, dark time. And that's this big crossover with shadow man. And I read the shadow man issue that, uh, that follows this issue. And you know, it's fun. It's like the Shadow Man comics, like I like, I just can't get into the vibe of the Shadow Man comics of this era. I have read some of the Cullen Bunn issues of the modern Valiant stuff, and I think it's uh, like like I feel like there could be a good story with Shadow Man, but uh, like again, like the the race stuff in Shadow Man does not work for me in any way. But there is a really good example of love, love ritual number one, which is like doing the little things. Carmen uses her engineering skills to figure out a way to make the phone accessible to Huen. She installs a feature that makes the pickup voice activated, but the 90s has not cracked caller ID yet. <laughs> and Enrico and Carmen get to witness a super awkward phone call between Mama Fong and Baby Fong. Of course, 
since she's his mother, he's like, what's going on? I can tell something's wrong. Just tell mama. And he's like, I'm really busy. Oh, what? I got, I gotta go. Yes, Carmen. Bye, mom. And uh, yeah. Enrico and Carmen give him like the like dirtiest looks like, oh man. And when you have a conversation like that with your mother, she's getting in a car, she's going to an airport and she's flying your way immediately. And, and so it comes to pass. Yeah. Issue six is where the series kind of picks back up again. Uh, after their adventure in New Orleans with Shadow Man, they return. Uh, and they, like, what I love about this is during that time with Shadow Man, Enrico is trapped in the bathroom uh, he, back at their place. He's locked inside. He's been, like, doing nothing but using cleaning products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hygiene products. Hygiene products. And in his, like, obsessive uh, exploration of every single item in the bathroom, he decides that all of these products contain dangerous chemicals and he wants nothing to do with them. And so he's going to get rid of all the hygiene products in his life, which sets off this chain reaction that makes him into this really smelly beast <laughs> and scares off his girlfriend. But thankfully he finds another girlfriend who likes a smelly beast. But that's the B plot. However, within that B plot, Enrico suggests to Carmen and Wen that they need to take a break, that they need to go somewhere where Wen can like mix in like a normal human being and not just this weirdo specter. So, whoa, Aspen, Colorado, you've got the ski suit. You don't have to hide. You don't have to turn invisible. You can walk around. And the reason that this vacation is so important is because in the Shadow Man issue, Master Dark had told them, like, I am going to make Wen corporeal again. And of course, Master Dark doesn't make good on that deal. So they're dealing with this tremendous disappointment. So they really do need to get away and do a little love ritual number four, planning in the fun. And have we mentioned in this episode that Wen and Carmen are like independently wealthy? No, we have not. Yeah, they're, they're Bruce Wayne. They're super rich. So they're able to do it up right for Wen. They book a private jet so he doesn't have to ride in cargo with the dogs. Um, they get a super fine suite and they fill their trip with all of these activities that reinforce and celebrate their love in in a way that kind of reminds them of the way it was before. Unfortunately, when Carmen was in New Orleans, she stepped in some goo, and that goo turns out to be Dr. Eclipse. And Dr. Eclipse is also tagging along on the ride and periodically sucking the life out of uh, random strangers. I do want to include one of their, like, planning in the fun just because I Googled it. Let's do it. So there is one scene where oh. she's reading him an erotic scene um, from a book, which I think is a really fun, saucy activity for a married couple. We've done it. Yeah. Have we? Yeah. Some Stephen King novels. <laughs> yeah. We no, read we have Graveyard not, Shift together. We have not done this. Brad's <laughs> trying to make it up for, make up for telling you, you guys that we don't do it every day. He's like, yeah, but we're reading each other erotica. We're not. <laughs> that would be uncomfortable for me because I'm a prude. Um, but what he's reading from is an erotic scene from Vox by Nicholson Baker. I Googled it. And it, so that was like the 50 shades of gray of the early 90s. I've never heard of it before. Me neither, but I'm curious. So like in that scene, what I think is happening 
is um, they're squirting a water pick into each other's mouths. <laughs> so gross. And it ties in the theme of the hygiene. hygiene products. So it all comes full circle. And you're like not saying the water pick is in the comic, the book that they're reading, Vox, the water pick is in the novel they're reading. And like, here's a passage that Carmen is reading to Huen. And it's, it's her saying, you know, this is in quotes from the book. I open my mouth and let it fill with water. The feeling of the water overflowing my mouth. You there, don't stop talking. But that's all she said. Oh. <laughs> um, later in that same scene. In she, the book. In the in the book. Now I have the, the online readfreenovel.com. Oh, what? What? And um, a later uh, a later line is, I'm sorry, I have a problem with involuntary swallowing. Oh, God, no. <laughs> filthy. Oh, filthy, filthy. Fifty Shades of Vox. The next issue, number seven, starts as a chase scene, but turns into a face-off between Eclipse and the Mirages. It also has the best cover it's of the nine fun. issues. It's like this homage to the classic Jaws poster, but instead of the shark in the water, it's Eclipse coming up through the blue, and, and Dr. Mirage, uh, Hoen, is up top like the swimmer. And man, I love this cover. I want this. This should be a Mondo poster. Oh, yeah. That would be great. This issue is also when we have the culmination of Hoen's concerns for Carmen's safety now that he is incorporeal and he is so much more aware of her fragility. Mm -hmm. And he feels like his powers are at a place where she should never be in danger. And he's growing more and more panicked. And in response to that, she doesn't get upset or defensive or like, just let me do my thing when she becomes like the calm one, mm -hmm. which is a great like couple Balance. defense mechanism. Like when one person is starting to go over the deep end, the other person has to be the more present. Yeah, person. we talk about it, you know, all right, Lisa, you got to hold the spoons today. I don't have it in me. Exactly. And... Um, they reach a place where they go to hide out in a cave again. They're always in caves. So many caves in Aspen. <laughs> and um, she figures out a way to create a lamp using the pieces of a snowmobile that she um, that they stole. And when Gwen sees that, it reminds him that she's like this strong and capable person. And it kind of resets his emotions. He goes, oh yeah, we're a team. She knows Capoeira. She's got a master's in science slash engineering. And so this scene mirrors the scene in the laboratory of the first issue where their powers combined defeat the antagonist. They're complementary. Yes. So with Eclipse defeated in the next issue, they go back home and Wen starts to like really long for food and to keep his mind off his hunger, he decides he wants to start doing some cooking, some baking, and he, he tackles that kitchen. And in the process of doing that, he nearly burns the home down. And this little like mini near tragedy just underscores all this tension that's in their relationship with him like 
you know, being a ghost and he might actually be fading away. He's losing his power. He goes off to find Master Dark to see if he can figure something out, but he doesn't find him. He finds his sister, Sandria, and Sandria starts to tell him, like, look, you're the one and you need to feed off of necromantic energy. That's that's what you got to start doing. I'm going to help you out here. I'm going to give you a little boost, but you got to you got to get into the game. You got to fight dark with dark. This is actually the second time Sandria has called Huen the One, and we don't know what that indicates yet. Another thing that seems kind of foreboding is that she kisses him on the cheek, and he feels it. Yeah, there's like a physical contact there. And we know that, you know, hunger is not the only bodily need that that needs to be fulfilled. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. And so now it's like, oh. Is Sandria going to be a threat to this relationship? I hope not. I I will be very upset. There is also uh, an example in this issue of Carmen doing the little things. She figures out how to resolve his hunger feeling by recalling in great detail meals of their past. And that satisfies that like psychosomatic want for food, which I think could also perhaps um, satisfy his other bodily needs. Vox, Vox, Vox. Uh, (laughs) Issue nine is where we're going to end this conversation. And it's a cliffhanger, but some significant stuff happens. It opens with Carmen having this dream, this wet dream, really, Mm -hmm. of her and when in a loving embrace, they can actually touch and be intimate together. And of course, she wakes up and that's not true. But following that dream, they have a state of the union type discussion. They use that as an opportunity, a springboard to connect the dots. And they throw themselves back into their work, their investigations, and they're hired by this businessman to figure out like what's going on with his partner. Something is happening. He believes his partner to be possessed. Right, and that's why we got to call the the parapsychologists. But it turns out that it is not a possession, but a shapeshifter. And this creature as he's being investigated, sets his eyes on Carmen, follows them back to their home. He takes Huen's form, not knowing that Huen is a ghost, and he tries to seduce Carmen, and she's thrilled because now they're touching, and then Huen comes in. He's like, what are you doing? Who is that? That's a monster. And he's like completely red and scary. Cliffhanger. Oh, but honestly, that's not the thing that I'm most excited about. Like, like I'm sure that's going to resolve. They're going to have a fight with the creature. They're going to take care of the creature. But Mama Fong has shown up at this point, too. She's knocking on the door. It's a what? surprise mama visit. Yeah, what's going to happen? And I guess we also have dangling out there Sandria and her possible plans for when. And I don't know, like, for me, Lisa... Based on everything we've seen between Wen and Carmen so far, they've they've been dealt an incredible situation that would destroy many couples, I would imagine. But they are making it work. You know, they're stressed out, they're crying, they're arguing, but at no point does it feel like we're at a, a destructive breaking uh, point. For me, it feels like it would take some kind of uh, paranormal 
magical tampering or, to make Huen not faithful to Carmen. Or it would take a writer really betraying the narrative that they have created. I actually feel a little frustrated that there's only nine issues after this. Yes. Because I love this couple so much. And in our next episode, when we cover that back half of The Second Life of Dr. Mirage, at some point, Bob Layton and Bernard Chang leave. No. And, you know, I'm really worried with those last few issues if those new creators are really going to bungle things. But that's just like, an, you know, that's just a worry. And I guess that's really impressive because that indicates how much I've really fallen for these two as a couple, which is something that I was not necessarily expecting when Mike at Tencent Take said, you got to cover these two. Because, you know, my time with Valiant was pretty much done. I was not anticipating going back to this 90s era. And I certainly wasn't anticipating going like, these two are rad. And I think that's the same case for you, Lisa. And I'm wondering, as we move into the, the final minutes of this episode, what, what have you really pulled from this couple? What have you pulled from this conversation? How are we applying Wen and Carmen to our own lives? What I admire about Wen and Carmen is that they have identified where their partners have strengths that they don't have mm -hmm. and they celebrate it. Mm -hmm. Where sometimes, I don't know if it's because like I'm a sibling or whatever, but sometimes I compare myself to you and I go like, oh man, Brad is so good at social media or he's so articulate or he is so good at recalling all of these minor comic book characters and it makes me feel poorly about myself that's ridiculous i don't go like like i don't see huen going like man i really should work out more and and work on my capoeira skills he doesn't feel like he has to be able to do everything Carmen can do. And Carmen doesn't seem to want to do all of the things that Huen can do. They're perfectly happy being different and complimentary. And what the story does is it keeps returning to that idea. Like that is on the mind of Bob Layton and Bernard Chang. And even when that balance is upset, where Huen is all of a sudden so much more powerful in a particular way, and he goes like, well, that makes me want to carry my load and Carmen's load. Yeah. I should be able to protect her and take care of her, even though he's never had to do that before. And she and she doesn't get upset with him. She just kind of goes like, gently goes like, look, I, I have engineering skills that your being a ghost cannot satisfy, you yeah. know? Yeah, I, like, And my big takeaway from them as a couple is that each has a skill set that is beneficial to their goal as a couple and their goal as work as a working couple, right? Mm -hmm. They're not podcasters, they're paranormal investigators, and they're using their two separate skills to achieve that, which is something that I think we strive to do. I I've, I'm curious, like if you can like backwards engineer, like um, we could go like if we wanted to take our complementary skills into like other areas of our life, could we go like, oh, well, Brad is really good at social media and Lisa is really good at, what am I good at, Brad? You're great at analysis. You're great at theme. Like you can break down a theme like no one I've ever met. Right, so we take those two skills and we apply them to maybe 
uh, writing a book oh, or oh, whatever. Oh, we have talked about writing a book. We have, and, off mic. But we could also talk about how each of us do two separate things with this podcast, and I think it shows in how we structure this podcast. And, and I think we make a better show because it's me and you doing our own things. Mm, yes. So, Brad, do you have anything that you kind of take away from Juan and Carmen or from our love expert, <laughs> Mr. Petrovic? I, I got to say, I've really enjoyed our love expert this week because I like the idea of looking at something and going like, ah, I don't agree with this. Mm -hmm. And here are my issues. And also in tackling those issues, we are sharpening our ideas of what we want from a love expert, right? And so I've really enjoyed uh, applying M Mr. Petrovic's strange book to Carmen and Wen. And I think we've, you know, by looking at those rituals, I, I, again, I think there is some good stuff there that he is clearly stealing from other <laughs> love experts and applying or reworking into his own narrative. I do think that it is uplifting to take something that should be commonplace, like talking to your partner or making planning more time for fun and making it a little bit more sacred or a little bit more special by calling it a ritual. Yeah, yeah. Like, like it's kind of... Um, uh, uh, elevates the status yeah. of the everyday. We've talked about it before, but you know, sometimes after you've been together for a long time, you forget to date. Yeah. And you know, scheduling uh, a Baskin Robbins taste test as a date, <laughs> that could be a ton of fun. And it breaks up the routine of the, the normal things that we do every week as a sign of affection. One thing I do not want to put too fine a point on, I think I, this is the second time I've used too fine a point. Yeah, don't, don't worry about that. <laughs> um, is that I do think that Marco Petrovic uh, is being a little bit more nefarious. I think there is something a little bit more insidious in what he's trying to accomplish oh, in okay. love rituals um, by some of the language that he uses. Can like, you expand on that a little bit? So going back to the phrase like, no gimmicks, no fancy analysis. Like, oh. that's just one example where he tries to set himself apart from other experts by saying, like, I'm not trying to confuse you or, you know, I'm not trying to waste your time like people who have degrees. Yeah, he's dismissing the sciences. It, which I think... Um, is is not unusual, but I think is can be pretty damaging, especially if somebody is in a really precarious, um, perhaps dangerous situation in their relationship, along with the idea of going like, you can fix your relationship without the cooperation of your partner. I also think that's yeah, a really dangerous suggestion. I, that's crazy talk. And um, he does include a disclaimer notice that um, non-experts do have to include if they're doing this kind of book where they're making such claims. <laughs> but, For legal reasons. <laughs> exactly. But the way that he couches his disclaimer notice, I think, is an example of 
um, the way that he is trying to manipulate his readers. Well, what is the disclaimer? So it's at the end of the book. Um, it's at the very end, <laughs> sure, after the course. copyright and stuff. And it says, <laughs> quote, the author made his best effort to provide accurate and authoritative information. Um, so here's just an aside. You didn't even look up Esther Perel's Wikipedia uh, to figure <laughs> out where exactly she is from, um, which is also in Mating in Cactus. Captivity. So if this is your best effort, I am not impressed. Um, I'll continue. Even though the author of this material is well-versed in the subject matter, there's no evidence of that in this book. Yeah. Um, the material contained in this book does not constitute professional advice. And then he goes into the legal side. Okay. So I think that, like, if you put that before your disclaimer, he's saying, like, you know, I did everything that I can in my expert opinion to provide this information But to you. my expert opinion is not actually an expert opinion. Exactly. So don't sue me. So like I, I just find that to be very, very gross and alarming. Now I do have to put out there that like he is not like he is not successful. He's not a successful love expert. This is his third book, but you know, I've looked up his Twitter for this book. It hasn't been updated since 2017. His website also has not been updated since 2017. Yeah, but you found it. So, but yeah, I did. Um, but unless he has um, changed like his name or like he's come up with um, another like persona persona to, to pursue this. Like he's stepped out of this game. Yeah. Well, I don't think I'll be tagging him in anything. Yeah, no, uh, but I, I don't know. Like I'd be curious to hear from the listeners how they feel we've tackled this week's love expert. And our plan is to continue with the five love rituals in our next episode. Guess what? I've got more to say. <laughs> and our next episode will be the conclusion of The Second Life of Dr. Mirage, the last nine issues. And then we are going to conclude the end of the year with our end of the year best comics of 2021. I am so excited. I'm so excited. Like, I'm so to me, excited. like, that has now been folded into our holidays. Doing yeah. that episode is just one of our love rituals with comic books. I'm also really excited because over at Film School Rejects, where I write, I am going to be doing the first ever best comics of 2021 list for their end of the year recap. So if you're listening to this episode around Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday, that list should drop. No, some recommendies. I, I don't have time for recommendations. I'm oh, writing the article now, <laughs> but it should drop this week. So please head on over to Film School Rejects. Give me some clicks there. Share that article. Share this episode. And again, like, I want to hear your feedback on our Dr. Mirage episode because, you know, like, like how many people are excited that we're even covering Dr. Mirage? It's not a character that you hear a lot of nostalgia for, but I would argue there should be some serious Dr. Mirage nostalgia. Absolutely. And I would love to put a pin in that conversation and revisit it on our next episode. Yeah. yeah. And I'm also pursuing a lot of contemporary Bernard Chang work. Yeah. Uh, he did Children of the Atom for Marvel, go seek that book out, guys. Lisa, you haven't read that yet? I think you'd really like it. 
Okay, crazy legs, <laughs> where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Okay, gooey love. Ew, I do not like, guys, that is not our secret pet name. <laughs> what what Patreon level oh. do they have to be at to know the embarrassing pet name? We're going to have to like create a $50 Patreon <laughs> level. Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for a radical banner art and show poster, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, Ooh. you can join our Patreon where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CBCC Podcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy. Now let's go get that water pick. Yeah.